0: You're listening to a CNA Podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode in the special series called It Differently, where we discuss neurodiversity at work. I'm Grace Yeoh, and by now, if you've been following this podcast, you would know that I have ADHD. Since finding out, I've seen how virtually all my strengths and weaknesses, and not just at work, are related to ADHD. And when I eventually wrote about this affecting my work, so many people reached out those who were neurodivergent, those who worked or lived with neurodivergent folks. So far, we've heard from an autistic in the tax field, what it's like to lead and manage a team when you have ADHD, and how one adult turned his dyslexia into his strength. So I thought I'd wrap up this series with a look at recruitment when it comes to neurodiversity. I have with me two people, who have inadvertently shaped my journey to embracing that I'm different, although I've never told them this before today. My first guest, Dawn Fu, is a career and life coach and a former education and career guidance counsellor with the Ministry of Education. I first met Dawn at an event about five years ago and we instantly connected. It was only after we both got diagnosed with ADHD years later that we understood why our connection felt so intuitive. My other guest is Stephen Ng, the Chief Information Officer at local cybersecurity firm Enzyme Info Security. When I first spoke with Stephen two years ago, he was very passionate about a program he was piloting to hire autistic people. And I wanted to find out how that's going. Very happy to have you both here.
1: Happy to be here.
2: Thanks, Grace. We were at the right time, right place five years ago, and here we are. So Grace accepted my invitation to be a career day speaker for 14-year-olds. And I still remember she answered a question that most speakers don't answer when they are in the house, which is, how much money do you make a month? <laughs> so she went down to the dollar. And I think that was very impressive because you were contrarian from then. Most people, yeah, they're not privy to sharing such information.
0: And I'm glad that you accepted my <laughs> contrarian views. Otherwise, yes. this podcast today would not exist. Exactly.
2: And
1: I was very happy to have had that occasion to speak to you two years ago. That was at the beginning of our program, so we didn't know what we were really getting into. It was an experiment. And I will say that after two years, we've got a lot more to share.
0: I can't (laughs) wait to hear about it. Okay, so Dawn, as a career coach and counsellor, right, you've probably worked with all sorts of people, teaching them how to harness their strengths, how to manage their weaknesses, even way before conversations around neurodiversity started. But when did you realise that you were different and how did that feel?
2: Round about upper primary school, I started noticing that I've always been more emotional than other people. And that was something that I was made to feel really bad about. It's like, why are you so emotional? Can't you snap out of this? No answers. And I was looking and thinking. It was only after I started work for, I think it was in probably my fifth year or so, and I realised that, you know what, being emotional can be a strength. I can choose to be emotionally intelligent. How do I then better connect the dots? Because that made me really observant. I would notice at least three different things or conversations at one time. And then to be paid to do a job like that in comms was a privilege. So I decided then that I was going to reframe that. But that was one thing that really stood out, which was I always had empathy overload because I was able to feel and always think in terms of what other people are going through. And I think eventually that also led to the diagnosis. That was during COVID period. So back then it was when once you get tested positive, you have to be in isolation for 14 days. So my husband realized that we made that decision that we're going to do that at home. But the interesting thing is my mom stays with me and she's a home dialysis patient. She's 70 and I have a four-year-old, right? So suddenly the executive functioning load all became just resting on my shoulders. So I was working from home and then I was literally going through five shifts of work every day taking care of the logistics, such as try getting a 4-year-old and a 70-year-old to do a swap test every day huh? before they go out, and then showing up for class via Zoom, attending meetings. And I was also studying to be a coach then, so I had to keep a lot of hours based on US time. And it was just so difficult because the empathy overload was so heavy. So I remember I was in the room one day. I had three items in my hands, I think a remote control, my handphone, and a set of keys. I knew in my mind distinctively that three things that needed to be done could not reach or move an inch to do any of them. So that's when I know I need help. So I reached out. Uh, first person was cause made for coaching and she was a senior mental health therapist. And I told her, have I ever told you that I think I have ADHD? And she said, no, but I suspect it. So to cut the long story short, I've seen two psychiatrists, I've done the brain scan, the full works. But when I found out, Stephen Grace, it was like joyous. Right? I love connecting the dots. Mm. I don't need to be fixed. I'm not broken. I can actually use this to my benefit in the work that I do.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's very liberating, I think, to have a label. I think a lot of people say a label is bad or you need to go beyond the label. But I think for me, at least, it's much bigger help than a hindrance because at least yes. it puts a name to something that was ambiguous all along, which is it's great. I mean, language is clarity, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Likewise, having some sort of structure is always helpful for neurodivergent brains. Stephen, tell us about this program you have piloted with Enzyme.
1: We are the first Singapore cybersecurity company to partner with Autism Resource Centre to embrace neurodiversity by training and hiring neurodiverse individuals. What we have done since 2019 was to hire individuals on the autism spectrum for roles within our Security Operations Centre. So these are very critical 24 7 roles, first responder roles. Mm. Those areas where they prove to be really strong in are their attention to detail, their Mm -hmm. diligence, which some neurotypical people say they are more diligent than the (laughs) average neurotypical person. (laughs) So in this industry, I think, especially in the cyber industry, it's highly competitive for the same limited pool of talent. Mm -hmm. And generally in most tech sector, there's a lack of diversity in the approaches. Mm -hmm. For example, there are more men (laughs) <laughs> this initiative was meaningful to us and it gave us an opportunity to tap into a new pool of talented individuals
0: I can't speak for everyone, but for myself at least, in the wrong environment, wow, my flaws are extra obvious <laughs> Magnified <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, and in the right environment, the strengths are amplified Don, I want to know, do you think that very tailored programs could help neurodivergent individuals across
2: different industries? from the point of view of a neurodiverse individual, sometimes they're just, they're really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it also comes with the turf that we're really good at doubting that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Grace can understand that, yeah, probably you completely. can. So it's almost as if we are holding ourselves up to a higher standard. I'm not saying that that's always better.
0: It's not a higher standard, it's a neurotypical standard. That's right. So,
2: yes, I stand corrected. And in that, you've got to get someone who really tries very hard, but possibly is struggling, Because I'm on the losing end here, I'm trying so hard and I'm worried that I'm not going to be accepted and things are calibrated so differently around me. But if I can focus on just a few good things like my zone of genius, Mm -hmm. all right, and then I am the go-to person for that. Mm -hmm. And anything else, honestly, I've creatively bartered away over time. (laughs) (laughs) So I could have a friend who was like with me in a project team, right, and I'll go like, you don't like the presentation skills part? I'll do it because I've been identified as being good at it, but I don't necessarily like it. It's just that if I have a choice to make, between that and administrative work, like budgeting and doing schedules for people, oh gosh, I can't do that. I can, but it takes me three times longer. Give me data. <laughs> I'm staring at Steven here. Data <laughs> stuff. I was given some projects with data analytics. I'm like, okay, let's see what I can do here, but I'll do my best. And then I can come around and say that, hey, I gave it my shot. I don't say no prematurely, Have you ever struggled before COVID times
0: in a typical employment or with a structured kind of workplace, even pre-work from home
2: period? Absolutely. (laughs) So I think over the past 25 to 6 years, I've worked in 12 organisations in about 8 different roles. I think length of employment spans about 6 months to 9 years and a few things always kind of stuck. I've done almost every job that I set out wanting to do in my life. So I've been a public prosecutor, a communication specialist. I've not been a journalist though, so I live vicariously through your exploits, Grace. (laughs) But since then, I realised even for things that I was not trained for formally, like prosecution and all, it was always something in me that says, just give it a try. I I guess that's that sense of adventure. But on the struggle side of the house, I've always kind of felt that I didn't fully fit in. I looked at things kind of differently. Being from the corporate side, I can hold the line really well, no problem. But... I would wonder why are certain processes, procedures, or the other P word, policies, the way they are? Can we not make it like maybe change it to be a little bit more efficient, user-friendly? The other thing that I always presented was I got bored so easily. So if I didn't have enough things to do, I would think of ways that I could possibly do something different. But I think the biggest hurdle was about being emotionally, I would say, very sensitive. I took comments and especially criticisms quite hard. There was a process where I didn't really know how to emotionally regulate. Mm. So it was tough because being in the media industry and of course being illegal before, there were certain things that I kind of knew that, is it just me? I can say for sure, it's not just you. <laughs> you also know, right, as a career coach, you've worked
0: with other individuals, so many of them who I think have similar struggles to you. Seeing your own experience as well as theirs, What do you think employers should do if they want to walk the talk and truly be inclusive?
2: I think the very first thing when I work with clients, having a system in line not just to place them but to develop them is so important. We'll talk about the placement first because that's the big hurdle that they have to cross. And the truth is some of them just don't interview well. Full stop. You know, you can bring the art and the science to it and you can get them to do this and do that. But they can't really pick up social cues. It's not their fault because they're not wired in that certain way. The age-old format, like panellists of interview, there's nothing primarily wrong with it, but is it fit to the function that the job requires? So unless this person is required to be in a customer service or facing role, and you expect them to pick up certain cues, like non-verbal, please don't put them through that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I I think lowering the perceived stakes of risk Mm. and being judged would help really immensely. So that could mean switching up the format. It could mean like just having it more conversational first. Uh, maybe breaking it down, not like seven to one kind of ratio. And I think also importantly, the environment mm-hmm. that they're in. And not many of us get this, but it's truly important. So like when I go into an environment, maybe the sense of over or being understimulated matters. Mm-hmm. Even simple things like having them uh, maybe visit the workplace environment just for a short while. You don't need them there the full time. But wouldn't it pay off in the longer run to get them to understand what the environment is like rather than only waiting for them to get on board? Further on, I think walking the talk would be Just watch out for the first win that they might make at the office and reward them, encourage them. At the same time when they make the first mistake, Mm. I think that's where things can invariably go wrong as well because rejection sensitivity might come in.
0: Are you looking for ways to make your money work harder? Tips on saving, investing or retiring early perhaps? Or advice on big-ticket decisions like buying a house or owning a car? I'm Andrea Heng, host of CNA's top personal finance podcast, Money Talks. And these are some of the things we find out for you. Each week, I get a guest to share personal stories and answer burning questions that help you make sense of the latest financial trends. Go check out the complete Money Talks playlist on the CNA app, Spotify, Google or Apple Podcasts. Many people go through such struggles, but some individuals might not realise they have these struggles because they're neurodivergent. (laughs) And even if they do realise it, I don't know if they're comfortable disclosing it, especially in the hiring process when your goal is really to get a job, right? Do you think there is still this stigma, perhaps not with the recruiter themselves, but Mm. this fear that it will eventually come up in the team that they work with or with their direct bosses or managers? And are these fears valid?
2: Yes, I would lean towards saying yes, simply because we all tend to work with what's familiar. And there are certain notions that uh, are quite hard to unlearn. So when you tell someone you have ADHD, they cannot tell you the number of times people look at you and go, yeah, but can't tell. Not you sure? (laughs) (laughs) So they kind of try and tell me like, so I appreciate the the effort to disprove that, but I I don't need that. But I I think the bigger idea here is that when you share information like that, and if you share it in a vacuum, it's not going to be helpful. Because I don't really expect managers to understand what that means immediately. So I, for one, I could say I didn't do a very good job. I I once had an intern come up to me and said, Don, my father wants me to tell you that I have OCD. To be honest, I couldn't remember how I reacted, but I think it was nothing to hoot about because (laughs) I probably was like thinking, oh my, uh, you're okay. Uh, And then when I looked at her, of course, there were certain repetitive sets of behaviour. But the larger issue was that she wasn't really a good fit for the comms role that we had, that was public-facing. And I think if that conversation had been framed a little bit differently, like, Don, I have OCD. There are certain things that I would like to share in advance. These are some things that have helped me. This was something that we could work on. I would appreciate that. And then that would have started that conversation. Because what it does is it either amplifies my ignorance or also her awareness of how she works best. So, I'm imagining that she might have been negatively treated before because of her condition. But as a manager, I didn't take the initiative to ask a as spell. I'm not proud of that. But there was something that was real about that. Mm. And the stigma is real. The stigma also comes
0: because you're hired for your skills and your qualifications but I think it's only when you show up at work and when you're put into a specific environment that certain struggles come up and when these struggles come up it's not the easiest for employers to deal with as well especially if they don't have any experience dealing with neurodivergent individuals. Stephen, as an employer yourself who has piloted a program to hire autistic individuals how do you create this safe environment that kind of mitigate or maybe even eliminates this fear of stigma even during the hiring process.
1: I wouldn't overgeneralize everything since what we've done in Ensign Info Security over the past two years was primarily focusing on autism. Mm. It starts from three things. The first thing is on beliefs. Mm. We do have to have beliefs that everyone has unique strengths, can make valuable contribution. Diversity and inclusiveness is indeed a strength to any team. And for us, that includes neurodiverse individuals. And over the past two years, neurodiverse individuals who have joined us have shown that they can perform as well Mm -hmm. and sometimes even better than neurotypical individuals in their areas of strengths. The second thing is about support. Now, the Autism Resource Centre was front and centre working with Ensign security. They have deep experience working with neurodiverse individuals. ARC provided us with guidance and support to identify and assess potential neurodiverse individual teammates. ARC assisted us in tailoring our recruitment and mm. our onboarding processes to facilitate a smooth transition into their roles. Now, this third part really is about people. People create safe environments. Yes. And this is what makes the feared stigma a non-issue. Mm. And I'm going to talk about four things here. Number one, things that we've done, we've prepared the team in signed with awareness and education initiatives. Mm. This allows the team as well as the neurodiverse individuals to not to overcompensate.
2: Okay. Mm. And
1: awareness actually removes fear from both sides. The second thing is we refined the hiring processes, uh, procedures, policies.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You have to say that (laughs) credit. Thank you. Mm.
1: Also works schedules. So that's to allow a smooth transition. Uh So basically we took a phased approach to the onboarding. The neurodiverse individuals were given time to fit into their roles over several months. Uh It allowed them to really express their strengths as opposed to what they couldn't do. The third thing was that uh, we provided a lot of training in uh, soft skills and hard skills. The last thing, which is something that really helped a lot was that we asked for volunteers within the company, diversity champions, and work buddies to support the neurodiverse individuals. And when we asked for volunteers, we had many neurotypical teammates who volunteered. A surprising revelation was that most of them have had personal experience with neurodiverse individuals in their families or their extended families, or they have worked with neurodiverse individuals before or studied with them before. Mm. The saying is that the journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step, right? And in fact, once you have started, it's actually fairly straightforward to continue.
0: Well, that's very interesting. I think it seems like having such an intentionally tailored programme could help remove some of the stigma, or at least the fear of it. So let's say someone does get over stigma and they do decide to disclose their condition during the hiring process or eventually. Do you recommend that they explicitly tell their manager how to manage them? How would you advise them to ask for whatever help that they need?
1: Honestly, yes. The answer is yes. And that's my own personal opinion. And I wouldn't overgeneralize that. At Ensign, what we've done is we encourage all staff to be open about their experiences and their strengths. Because this allows for a place where they can really leverage their talents Mm. and their abilities. We feel strongly that neurodivergent individuals should tell their immediate teammates and leaders how to interact with them because the majority of the accommodation that needs to take place, it takes place daily. In the daily interactions between teammates, mm. so over the two years, what we have done is we've set up multiple channels for such conversation to take place.
0: Mm. But, you know. When it's so explicitly put out there, I think a lot of neurodivergent folks, you might feel like you're drawing more attention to yourself. And for us growing up, we have already so much attention drawn to us, either by way of self stigma or actual stigma from society, just because we process the world very differently. So it can also be very hard to ask for help, right? Because we just want to be on a level playing field with everyone else. We don't want to stand out, so to speak. But I do see the benefit in explicitly telling your colleagues and your managers especially that you're neurodivergent. Do you think there is any benefit though when it comes down to assessment like performance appraisals and stuff like that? Do you think neurodivergent individuals should be assessed on a separate metric from their
2: neurotypical peers? Yeah, this is a great question and I've been pondering about it for the longest time because I'm not sure if having a separate metric itself will outweigh the perceived differential treatment. Because as you pointed out, rightly, Grace, so we have always been, I won't say sticking out for the wrong reasons, but imagine if you're looking at the same person in another role, and you know that you're assessed specifically, explicitly on a different set of KPIs. It's not going to go down well, and it might actually be counterproductive, I I would imagine. What I do think is helpful is that at the core, the set of competencies are required to do the job. And that is really just tied to your business outcomes or objectives. That has to remain largely the same, to be fair, so that we don't disrupt. But there is another component that we might say is secondary but also important and that's on the relational aspect. So if you look at neurodiverse, again speaking from the limited point of view that I have, it's interesting because not all of us will do well but you won't penalise someone who's neurotypical because of that, right? Because you have managers who are prolific at what they do but at the same time, they're not exactly the most communicative people. So what we can do is then observe and see if in terms of that metrics then we measure progress, the room for collaboration, them stepping up when it's needed to take on certain positions or even leadership if they are willing. I know of some clients who will tell me, oh, I don't want to lead people because it's such a text. I'm good at what I do and I just want to stay in that zone. And then that's fine. If we can be upfront about it, that would make it optimal in terms of allocation of resources as well.
0: Stephen, I think this idea of a separate metric for assessment is very ingrained into this program that Enzyme has to hire artistic individuals. And I think I can definitely get behind such programs, especially if the employers are also trained to properly accommodate the neurodivergent individual, as opposed to, say, only placing the responsibility on the individual to disclose or to ask for help. Do you feel like there could have been anything better that you could have done with this pilot program? Any blind spots you may have missed? And how did you eventually figure things out?
1: Really, thank you for the sharing, Dawn. (laughs) I suddenly realized there's a blind spot in my mind that there's such a vast range of neurodiverse categories, right? And clearly, the experiences may be different. If I look back on our experience, what we've done with autistic individuals, I would say we have designed the job for the individual's strengths. Mm. And by doing so, you may be right, it's kind of a different metric. Mm. But then again, actually they were assessed in terms of their performance in the same way as any neurotypical individual. Mm. So the job was a good match. It allowed them to perform. And they were assessed according to the same performance level as the rest. And over the past two years, what I've seen was that some of the neurodiverse individuals have progressed further. Mm -hmm. They are involved in continuous improvement of their teams. Mm -hmm. Some of them are heading towards new team postings. Some have achieved more advanced professional certifications. Mm -hmm. If I have to balance the two, I would say that it's not really a separate matrix. It is a metric because of a good job fit, I believe. Mm. So I believe that we should assess neurodivergent individuals with a focus on their individual strengths, their abilities and their potential contributions to the organisation.
0: How have you seen things change in the neurodiversity space and what else would you wish to see in Singapore moving forward?
1: In fact, what I've observed over the past two years is that within our company, there has also been a notable shift in their mindset and greater understanding, people became more accepting, mm. supportive for neurodivergent individuals. I think one of the aspects that I'll like to see further develop would be the implementation of more inclusive hiring practices, with a special emphasis on neurodivergent individuals. I think there's also a need for more organizations to actively create pathways for them to enter and succeed in the workforce. This includes, of course, providing support during the hiring process, accommodations and training and development programs. I think additionally, by sharing best practices and pooling resources and collectively addressing challenges, we can accelerate the progress.
0: Not just in the cybersecurity industry, but in any industry, I think, could benefit from such programs. And finally, Dawn, since you got your ADHD diagnosis, I think you've also been very much more aware of your own (laughs) strengths and weaknesses, or at least why these strengths and weaknesses exist. How has your diagnosis helped you help
2: others as a job coach, as a career counsellor in just this whole space? Now, when I think of career coaching, so careers are a lot more personal and emotional than sometimes we care to admit. Interestingly, I coach around uh, mainly two themes, which is emotional intelligence and really that theme of hope. So around the same time Grace and I first met, I actually started writing on LinkedIn on a series of uh, just short interviews called How Ordinary People Excel. And the thought behind that was because I worked with teens, with youth who present a whole host of conditions. Neurodivergence is one Challenging socioeconomic situations are another I wanted to show them that How the ordinary person out there Not anyone famous But can also excel by doing the work that they love right? I didn't know that That would also become a framework That I would anchor my coaching on today Because I'm all about the emotions Because the first step is getting the job <laughs> The job search strategies All are still prevalent and important But then developing your career confidence When you're on the job That is where I see the space uh, In which my clients find most helpful So why is that? So we'll actually go through that series, where that series of steps where it helps them to really harness their strengths from their struggles. So that's about resilience. And then optimizing their internal and even external resources that can help them. And that goes towards building that toolkit that is personalized to them. It's made up of their experiences and things that have helped them to weather through whatever chapters they've gone through and what's ahead. Then the P will be for it. It's just prioritizing. Personal values are a big thing when it comes to us because we want to do work that we want to make money and make meaning at the same time. But we have got to be practical. What are the prospects out there really telling us in terms of the market? And finally, it's about expressing their emotions because a lot of times they come to me thinking, I want to change my job. But truth be told, it's not the change of job itself that really is the solution. They go into this space where they realise there are certain elements that need a little bit of ironing I would say it's usually about advocating for certain things that they believe are due or they are not ready to articulate and that very often includes the condition and how they will go around managing that I think that helps them in their personal space as well because we're focusing here on the professional sure but there's also this other space where you get the support of the people the community your loved ones into understanding what this condition means and beyond Yeah. Right. so it's really about creating more options along that whole line and range of diversity which is fascinating You
0: know, Dawn mentioned hope, and that's exactly what hosting this series has made me feel. To be honest, when I pitched this idea, I simply wanted to raise awareness about neurological differences and how those might show up in the Singapore workplace. But hearing everyone's stories, both of struggles and strengths, it's made me realise self-acceptance is a journey rather than a destination. I feel less alone, and if it has made one neurodivergent listener out there feel the same, I think my job is done. Don and Stephen have been so generous and empathetic with their insights today. And what a cathartic conversation. Thank you both. And thank you as well to my listeners for taking the time to learn. I'm guessing for some of you, there is someone in your workplace or in your life who may be neurodivergent and you want to understand them. I really want to know what you think of this series. Leave me a review or a comment on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And as always, thank you to the CNA podcast team, Crispina Robert, Jacqueline Chan, Joanne Chan, Saye Win, and Tiffany Ang for supporting my neurodivergent brain and its crazy ideas. I'm Grace Yeo, and here's wishing you a workplace where differences are strengths.